Good morning, everyone. Let us uh, go to the book of Romans. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 12. We have been in this series for a few weeks now. We started off looking at Romans 12. We talked about why we wanted to cover this particular uh, passage and uh, spend some dedicated time in it. Uh, We took a little pause for a week and we talked about new community. We talked about the fact that new community is layers, that new community is movement. We talked about what those layers looked like, uh, maybe ways in which you could live into the idea of layering in your life more effectively. Uh, And then last week, we came back to the book of Romans. Uh, Kevin spoke on the first verse, the part where it talks about the idea of offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. So our bodies, not just the body, but the the whole life, all of you, offering it as a living sacrifice, and challenged us that it's a choice. It's a choice that we have to make. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. But I want to remind you, through my own little version of Romans 12, you can throw it up there, Matthew. It says, uh, it says this in my version. I plead with you. Next one. Go all the way to the beginning. I plead with you, brothers and sisters... With eyes wide open to the pity and compassion of God, to take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as a living sacrifice, an act of intelligent or logical worship. That's a re-rendering of verse 1. Right, that everything we've talked about so far is basically to say this, that we are begging you, we are pleading you with you, along with the Apostle Paul in the text, to say that God has been so merciful to you, he has pitied you and I, he has shown compassion to us, that because of all that we cannot do for, our, for ourselves, that only he could do in us, that we should turn around and offer our very life back to him as a gift. A sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Because of everything that Romans chapters 1 through 11 talks about, because of grace, because of all of that, we stand on those truths and we believe then to say that we should offer our very lives. That everything we're going to cover for the rest of this morning out of verse 2 is based on this. That if we don't first get this, if we don't first get the grace of God, His love, His acceptance of us, then it would be difficult for us to get the remaining part. But verse 2 goes on to say this. I'll give you my edited version first. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. But let God remold your minds from within to a new and different person in all you do and think so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves toward the goal of true maturity. Or to put it in the ESV version, it says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to approach this verse this morning in a way that uh, I think I've been challenged to maybe rediscover it in some ways. Uh, For a long time, I believe that the church has probably had a perspective of this verse where we have uh, looked at it as a glass half-empty rather than half-full approach. So we've put the lens of our focus primarily on the idea of not conforming 
rather than the idea of being transformed. That we put all the emphasis on one side of this command or teaching or idea and uh, fail to recognize the other side. Or to put it another way, that we've almost decided that not conforming is equal to being transformed. That if I can get the not conforming part right, then I've already figured out the rest. But perhaps the church has really missed it. Perhaps the church has been so focused on this idea that, that uh, knowledge leads to action. I mean, if you've grown up in the church, you will probably see that the church has always had this weird perspective that if we talk to you more about something, if we offer more classes, if we have you read more books, if we fill your head with more knowledge and then do more classes on top of the classes we offered before, that somehow then knowledge will equal action. That to know something is to do something. We've realized over time that perhaps that's not the case. And so maybe this verse really is about three big ideas. It's about conforming. It's about transforming. It's about renewing. It's about conforming. It's about transforming. It's about renewing. Conforming, not being shaped into the mold of the world. Transformed, being uh, a complete change from the inside out. But I'm, I'm going to talk about it this morning through a different lens. I'm going to talk about Einstein elbow learning, and neuroplasticity. That's the goal this morning. Okay? Einstein, elbow learning, and neuroplasticity. The story is told about uh, Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, when he was a young professor, uh, was quickly rising in, uh, in not only knowledge, but uh, in the awareness that other people understood. He had something to offer that was unlike many other people had to offer at that time. And uh, as a young scientist who was growing in popularity, he started to be asked to go on a lecture tour throughout Europe, where he would go from university to university, and he would declare some of his thoughts on the application of his theory of relativity. And uh, they set out on this little journey to go from university to university, and when he did it, he hired one of his doctoral students to serve as an assistant and to be the driver. So this doctoral student would sit there, carry his bags to wherever he needed, would be in the car, would drive him to the lecture, would sit and make sure all the details were taken care of, and then would watch the lecture for hours till he was done, and then they would repeat it, drive to the next place, and do it again and again and again. Now, over a little bit of time, Einstein started getting a little frustrated by the uh, boredom of delivering the exact same lecture at every university across Europe. So he would do it, and he would do it again, and he would do it again. And so then one day, when he was in the car, he uh, tossed out an idea to his doctoral student and said, hey, how about this? Next university we pull into, I act like I'm your student. You act like you're Einstein. You deliver the exact same lecture that I've delivered. You've heard it 20 times. Just get up, deliver the lecture. I'll sit in the front row No one will be the wiser because at this point he hadn't rose in international popularity to the point where anybody really knew fully who he was. He was in academic circles, but beyond that, not as much. And so he's like, let's let's see if we can uh, get, get by with this. Let's try a little experiment and see if it'll work. And so they show up to the next university. They're greeted by their hosts. He walks up uh, and just kind of stands there. And uh, his student walks up, introduces himself as Einstein. Um, and just begins to go through all of the motions. Uh, like people are like fawning over him, talking to him, so excited that he's there while Einstein's just kind of sitting close by and taking it all in. 
So the, uh, the young student gets up front, stands in front of the whole crowd, it's a packed auditorium, and uh, he delivers the application of relative theory and just gives the whole lecture basically flawlessly while Einstein sitting in the front seat with a big smile on his face and is going, man, we did it. This is really cool. This is awesome. There was, however, one little catch, and the catch is this, that unlike all the other universities up until that point, the host professor of this university gets up at the conclusion, and, and uh, the clapping happened, everyone's really excited, and he stands there and he says, now I'd like to open it up for question and answer. Hadn't been done before up to this point, and uh, you could see the blood just kind of wash from the, the young student's face, and it was like, oh no. And, but they still thought, okay, there's a chance maybe the questions won't be, uh, be that uh, problematic. And all of, a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, one of the professors from a neighboring university stands up and asks this incredibly difficult question on, uh, really on statistical, statistical mechanics and uh, quantum theory and is very elaborate in it. And there's just this sense like, oh no, the game is up. And Einstein's sitting in the front seat going... We're, we're to, the cover's totally blown. This is done for. It's over. So there's this long pause, and the student kind of, <clears throat> kind of like uh, takes a breath, composes himself, and then simply says to the audience, um, and particularly to this uh, professor, he said, I have to admit that uh, your question is so beneath me <laughs> that I am incredibly insulted. And I'm so insulted, and to prove that it is so beneath me, I will have my chauffeur answer the question. (laughs) What a student. What a student. So here's the the interesting thing. There's a difference between a formula and an essence. There's a difference between somebody having the instructions and actually knowing a product. There's a difference between somebody being able to recite a lecture and actually knowing quantum physics. There's a difference between pretending to be Einstein and actually being Einstein. I think true discipleship is life transformation that isn't because of formulas, it isn't because of simple steps or just a set of cognitive beliefs, right? What Christians think and believe arises out of what Christians do. Let me say that again. What Christians think and believe arises out of what Christians do, which reminds me a lot of violins. So I asked Neil to borrow his violin this morning. I will not play it because you wouldn't want to hear what it would sound like. But... uh, It has been noted that uh, one of the world's most renowned violin makers, does anyone know the name? Yeah, very good, very good. Uh, Half-illiterate Italian man named Antonio Stradivari, then he made Stradivarius violins, right? He, in the 1700s, would create violins, and one of the beautiful things about the violins he created is that they're around the world known as some of the most beautiful sounding most exquisite most handcrafted incredible violin that you could have there's only about 500 of them in the world today the value of these violins and this is not one of them the value of these violins is incredible Uh, the last 
Stradivarius violin that was sold, sold for $16 million. Yeah. Well, it would be nice to find that in an auction or something, right? So <clears throat> Stradivarius, one of the unique things about how he created or made the violins and what makes them interesting is not the, the worth of them, is not the incredible um, quality or the sound uh, or the, the unique features or the fact that there's so few of them. The thing that makes the Stradivarius violin so uniquely different is the fact that Antonio Stradivari never used instructions. He never followed a set of dimensions. He never wrote any of it down. There's no record anywhere of him writing down, these are the measurements, this is how you design it, this is what you do with it. Didn't come within a set of Ikea instructions, right? There's no other than the fact that he would design them by feel. He would spend so much time with the wood, he would spend so much time looking at it, feeling it, touching it, that he could tell the exact weight the balance, the feel, the tension on the strings, that everything that needed to be just as he wanted to design it was designed that way. Now, scientists have studied for quite a while his violins. In fact, they've tried everything they could to replicate them. What they've done is they've essentially dissected them, taken one and pulled it apart piece by piece and they analyzed the material, like what, what wood was it created with, and what minerals and material was it designed with, and, and, and what were the measurements, and were they all the same, and what did it look like? In fact, they put together a list, a set of what they would say are all the components of the Stradivarius violin, and so they would uh, re- recognize that the very top wood was spruce wood, that he always used spruce, but that he would use maple for the sides and for the back. They recognized that inside, all the little components, the parts, the blocks, all of it was made out of willow wood. They analyzed the minerals that he put on the wood, the way that he would soak it, the way that he would try to shape it. They studied all kinds of things. They even studied the fact that he made his own handmade varnish that he put on every single one of his violins. Handmade varnish, he mixed together, had eggs in it, had honey, had all kinds of other little minerals, and he would wipe it across the top, and he made all of it without instructions. He made all of it without a design. And so they have tried over and over to replicate it and never have been able to. And what's interesting is that the closest they've ever come to replicating the Stradivarius violin of the violins that were made by his apprentices. This is what is known as elbow learning. Elbow learning is this. I'll read you a definition. The process where an apprentice is trained in a new skill or art by sitting at the elbow of the master. See, in this case, the apprentices did not follow a formula. They did not read the instruction manual. That They did not follow the three steps that was needed to make the particular violin. They learned at the elbow of their master. And the way they learned was action, being involved, participating in it, doing it again and again. They learned to understand the feel, the weight, the smell, the sound, the strings, the tension, that everything that made it unique, they began to experience 
to the point where they could make one very similar without following any instructions. The beautiful thing about this story, the beautiful thing about this idea, is that they actually learned through repetition. They learned through hard work. They learned when their fingers got dry and worn out. They learned when they had willow dust in their nose. They learned right at the feet of their master. They had to breathe it. They had to live it. They had to understand it. And it seems that so often what we try to do is instead of experiencing it and feeling it and living it and smelling it and understanding it is we simply try to figure out what the formula is. We try to figure out what the components are. We try to follow the equation. And we do that when it comes to discipleship. But perhaps what we do is we spend so much time focused on the idea about what not to do. We talk about conforming and it's like, oh, I got to make sure not to watch certain types of entertainment. Or I need to make sure that I understand and have proper speech. Or that I get my morals correct, have the rights and the wrongs figured out. And some people think these things are right and some think these are, some think these are wrong and others think those are wrong. And maybe that's part of missing the point. Now, there is good in all of that. There are things that shouldn't maybe be a part of our lives. But maybe what apprentices really do is they focus on other things. Instead of trying to figure out what each of the steps are to make the violin, maybe they experience the process of making a violin and it changes the things that really matter. Like this. Maybe they have the right affections. Maybe that's what apprentices have. They have the right affections for the right things. They desire and long for the things that their master longs for. Maybe they have the right values. They place priority on things that others don't see nearly as important. Maybe they place priority on family and community and generosity and hospitality. When others around would look at those and maybe say, they're not needed. But they've come to learn at the foot of the master. Maybe they have the right aspirations or hopes right dreams. See, I think transformation is about elbow learning. It's sitting with the master and taking in his ways. But it's also about neuroplasticity. A little definition of neuroplasticity is this, also known as brain plasticity, is an umbrella term, reading from Wikipedia, by the way, an umbrella term that refers to changes in neural pathways and synapses due to changes in behavior, environment, neural processes, thinking, emotions, as well as changes resulting from bodily injury. I'll give you the long and short of it. It means this, that more and more research is beginning to understand that our brains are unique muscles, that when given more activity and increased patterns can actually grow, become more complex, and create easier pathways of change. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Amazing thing. What that means is that your use of the internet is changing your brain. The actions you do and repeat are physically changing your brain. The TV you watch, the routines that become a part of your life, all of those things, bit by bit, moment by moment, alter the pathways and the synapses and create within you a different way of living, a different way of thinking. 
that what you do and learn in life physically changes what your brains look like, or it literally rewires it. It's fascinating research. Maybe another way of saying it is this, that God has biologically wired you to be the kind of person that in your action transforms and renews your mind. That the very act of doing this collaborative work between the master and you becomes your transformation. It becomes your transformation. So God has said, do not be conformed, but rather be transformed, right? And transformation is an act both of the spirit and of us. It's an act of both the spirit and of us. So the word for transformed in this text in Romans chapter 12, if you were to read it in the Greek, it's in the present tense passive voice. What does that mean? Present tense passive voice. It means this, present tense. It's continuously happening. Your transformation is always in the process of happening. It's continuing to happen again and again and again and again and again, but it's in a passive voice, which means it's happening upon you. It means it's something that God is doing upon you. But, here's the one key. In this passage, and in its context, and in context beyond this passage, every work of the Holy Spirit in your life, when it talks about holiness and obedience within the Scriptures, every time it's ever talked about that the Holy Spirit is doing work in you, it always comes alongside of Reciprocal work that you yourself have to do in participation with the Spirit. It's implied. It's required. It's demanded. Maybe another way of saying that is that it's not just entirely passive. It's not you sitting back and allowing God to transform you. It's you being a part of the transformation. Paul says throughout the New Testament in many, many times and many occasions that for us to to develop or to lean into the kind of character that we want to exhibit in the kingdom to come. So he's saying, practice now what you will ultimately be like in fullness. Practice now what it will look like for you to live completely in the kingdom. Maybe another way of saying it is that you're commanded to act in this way. Colossians You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. It says this. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he's talking about this idea that you are going to be changed. You're going to appear with God in glory. You're in the process of being changed. So set your mind on things above because here it comes. And then the following verses say these things. It says this. First, put to death in verse 5. Then it says, put away in verse 8. These are both actions that you have to take. And then the more popular one that you're familiar with, put on then. Right? These are all active. They all require your initiation and movement, your understanding, your effort. So then he says, and put on holiness, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one doesn't complain against the other, forgiving each other. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. N.T. Wright, describing this passage, says this, What we need to grasp is the moral effort involved. Put to death, put away, put on. These are the points of particular interest. 
The main thing to notice is that none of these things comes naturally. Even for the Christian, it is not going to be so certainly to begin with. The point of virtue, as we have seen, is that eventually, as a person's character becomes more fully formed, such things may indeed come naturally. But the steps it takes to get to the point involved hard decisions and hard actions, choices that run counter to the expectations, aspirations, desires, and instincts of which every human being comes equipped. It requires action. That's why it's been said that action is magic. Maybe you've heard this statement before. Whatever you think you can do or believe you can do, begin it. Because action has magic power and grace to it. See, we act our way into transformation. We act our way into a new being. If you have been challenged in any time in the past to become a generous person, you have to put that into action to actually become one. Actually begin to give away that which is yours, that which he's let you borrow. You have the chance to begin to give it away. We don't become more generous simply by understanding the formula, getting the IKEA instructions, figuring out, taking a class. Generosity comes by simply beginning to take up the action of being generous. If you've never give if you've never given money away, it would start like this. Give one dollar today to someone, or throw it in the bucket, come back a week later, give another dollar. Then go crazy, give two the next week, right? And slowly but surely you become a new person. Slowly but surely you become generous. We think that sounds silly, but that is part of what transformation is all about. See, we have this weird narrative, I think, in our society where it goes something like this. You don't give anything, you don't give anything, you don't give anything, you don't give anything. You hear a plea about kids in Africa. You give $25, you give $50, you give $100, and then everyone goes, wow, you're so generous. It's amazing. That's not generosity. That's not generosity. Generosity is this. You give $25, you give $25, you give $25, you give $25, you keep giving $25. Even when it doesn't feel like you want to give $25, you've begun to develop this pathway. You've begun to act a certain way. Your character begins to take on the essence of being a generous person. And then you hear that exact same plea, and then you go, let me figure out how to give more. That is generosity. But we have this weird narrative that you can do it once and then just... Pat yourself on the back and say that's generosity. It's not. That'd be like me loving my neighbor once this month, this year, and then going, man, I'm such a loving neighbor. One time does not make one a loving neighbor. You find out they're sick, you bring them soup once. You've lived with them next to them for a decade. That does not make a loving neighbor. Right? It's the continuous acts It's doing it again and again that shows one's generosity, one's love, one's humility, one's grace, all of that. It happens again and again and again. Because part of being transformed is in the little things. Part of being transformed is in the small steps that rework your neurons, that change your wiring, that grow your brain and make you 
by the grace of God, an entirely different person. Let me finish with this quote. N.T. Wright goes on to say this, The putting on is a matter of consciously deciding again and again, let me add, and again and again and again to do certain things in certain ways, to create patterns of memory and imagination deep within the psyche. And as we saw from contemporary neuroscience, deep within the actual physical structure of our mysterious brain. Gradually, bit by bit, the putting on of these qualities, qualities that seem for the moment so artificial, so unnatural, so unlike me, will in fact transform the character, the person, you, me, at our deepest level. Let's pray. God, may we be the kind of people that are being transformed at our deepest level. May we be the kind of people that are not so focused on not conforming, so focused on all the knots that we miss, all the things that you've invited us into. May you change our affections, our emotions, our aspirations, our desires, the things that we value. May you change all of that. May your work upon us transform us. But may we be active in that with you. May we take up the action of becoming more generous, more hospitable. Inviting someone over is the beginning to being known as a hospitable person. Loving those that are difficult is the beginning of what it means to love well. God, may you work in us in that way. By your grace, may we be transformed. May a metamorphosis take place. May we look a little bit more like our master. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.